Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. Angie still has the same top pros and reviews you've counted on for more than 20 years. Only now, you'll also get access to all the tools you need to make your home a happy place. Inside, outside, big or small, Angie helps you find the right solution for whatever you need done all from your phone. It's simple to find upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. You can even search pricing guides to see what others paid for similar jobs and easily compare quotes from top local pros to make sure you're getting a fair price. From lawn care to repairing the AC to the project of your dreams, Angie has your home projects handled from start to finish. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, they'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with their happiness guarantee. Make your home an Angie home. Check out Angie.com today. And for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot htm. If you love scratches from the Virginia Lottery, you'll love the high roller blackjack scratcher with a chance to win up to 10 times your prize. Look for it at your favorite Virginia Lottery retailer. In fact, you can drive there right now. Now that's an everyday win. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 4.16. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. I am Andrew Brandt. I hope you guys are staying safe, staying healthy, staying calm. We'll get through this. We'll get to the other side of this quarantine as we hit whatever week it is, week seven. Hope the Business of Sports podcast help you get there along with all the other things you're listening to, you're reading, using this time connect with family and friends, and also just be good yourself. Uh, We will, as I said, get to the other side of this. We are presented, as always, by BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts, the exclusive partner of Podcast One Sportsnet. Use that promo code PODCAST1. Not any sports out there, but a lot to bet on, as I'll say at the end of the podcast, all the things you can bet on right now. You'll get a 50% sign-up bonus today. Bet online right now. Okay, before I get to the guest, we're going to have a really good conversation later with Gabe Feldman of Tulane University, one of the premier sports law scholars, to talk about this continuing issue, which is in the news this week, name image likeness revenue for college athletes, for student athletes in college. It's taken a turn with some recommendations released by the NCAA this week on... Wednesday, and we will talk about it in hopefully a in-depth, insightful, and good perspective way. Gabe and I both with member institutions, that disclosure up front, me with Villanova, Gabe with Tulane, but we'll talk about it. Uh, first, some rants on the NFL draft. Uh, as we go, as that now is in the rearview mirror, some obvious points to talk about. I did an emergency podcast on the Packers pick of Jordan Love in the first rounder. Uh, The quick summary on that, of course, deja vu, eerie 15 years ago, exact same thing. First round, we were 24th pick, they were 26th. We had a Hall of Fame quarterback on our roster, so does the current Packer team. We picked a quarterback, so did the current Packer team. The difference, of course, is Aaron Rodgers fell on our lap. This time they traded up for Jordan Love. The idea is that the Packers will have another franchise quarterback beyond Brett, Aaron, and Jordan Love. That's the goal. And, of course, Aaron Rodgers is the present quarterback, but not the future quarterback for the first time we can say that. He will play, Jordan Love. First-round quarterbacks have to play. They will play. The question in all of this, as I've talked about, as I've written about in Sports Illustrated, is, of course, when. And the when is going to be the question that the Packers get all the time, that Aaron gets all the time, that Jordan Love is going to get all the time, and 
funnel those questions back to the Packers. It sets up for a difficult situation in terms of managing Aaron, managing Jordan. It's fine. Aaron's going to say the right things. But at some point, and my guess would be two years, they'll make the transition. I never thought I'd say that, that they move on from Aaron Rodgers at his high level of performance, even two years from now. But the cap hit is going to be extreme even in two years, having $17 million on Aaron Rodgers if they move on in two years. Obviously, they can't move on sooner. The cap hit would be prohibitive, 30 something million next year. So that's not going to happen. So the earliest would be two years. And the one thing I'm most proud of, leading being the Packers, we knew the day would come when Brett wouldn't be the quarterback. We had to allow for a good team. And Brett's total dead money when he left, when he's traded to the Jets, $600,000. Because I resisted all that temptation to jump in and do Brett's contract like so many do, cap it out, convert bonus, I'm just convert salary to bonus. Didn't want to do that. Not with Brett, no. Didn't want to create a hole in the cap when he left. That hole will be there for the Packers now with Aaron. They've set themselves up, unfortunate. A couple other draft notes as I've talked about. I really had a sense of envy through the whole weekend watching these coaches and general managers and executive personnel people have their kids in their makeshift offices, in their houses, whether in their wife's office, whether in their bedrooms, whether in their family rooms, whether in their basements. But the kids were there. The wives were there. The friends were there even in some situations. Yeah, I can't even imagine, you know, 10 years with the Packers and all the draft rooms. It was so serious. It was the big event. You sort of just telling your family you're going to be away for the weekend. Don't even bother me. And now this was the opposite. So I think virtual or not, that has to stay. It was a human moment. I think more people watch the draft into Saturday, the lower rounds than ever before. The virtual thing went off without a hitch. I think the only thing that didn't sort of work was, you know, the undrafted experience, which I knew would be such a challenge uh, in trying to get everyone, you know, uh, corralled in one room. You can't do that with the, with the virus impact. So hopefully that worked out all right. Other thoughts from the draft, obviously the ratings were through the roof. Uh, obviously people are starved for sports. You knew the ratings were going to be high, but I think the virtual aspect to it, the human aspect to it, I thought made a difference. And people wanted to watch, like I said, people were watching the third day because they were into it. You know, let's continue this, which usually people sort of tune out after the first round, certainly after the first, second, and third round. On a personal note, I've talked to the Vayner clients on this podcast the past few weeks. We had three drafted. Cole McDonald, quarterbacks. You heard him here last week, seventh round. Darnay Holmes, cornerback. You heard him here a few weeks ago, fourth round of the Giants. And Jordan Fuller, you heard on this podcast well from Ohio State, defensive back going to the Rams, sixth round. So nice to see and a bunch of guys signing up. Some of the ones you heard here, like Stephen Montez, quarterback, Signing up with the Redskins after the draft. You heard Austin Mack here, receiver from Ohio State, signing up with the Giants after the draft. And then a final note on the, the draft. I'm here in Philadelphia. Again, like the Packers, picking a quarterback high when they have an established quarterback. This one is even more curious because of all the resources and investment on Carson Wentz. Obviously, those resources financially are into people like Aaron Rodgers as well, but draft resources, trading multiple number one picks to draft Carson Wentz and letting Nick Foles go because as I termed it, they were cheating on Nick on Carson Wentz by having Nick Foles. Now they're cheating on him with a much younger version. 
in Jalen Hurts. It can say all the right things. I mean, Hurts, again, second-round quarterbacks, they play, just like first round. Second round, maybe third round, you can't say that. But second round, you're going to play. You're going to play. So I don't know if they really see him as a as a gadget player, you know, that comes in and out and plays. I think he'll be a quarterback. But again, the question is going to be when. Obviously, when Carson Wentz get hurt, gets hurt, and I know you can justify it that way, but it's curious because all the draft resources spent on Carson Wentz and you sort of add to that a second round pick spent on Carson Wentz because he's not going anywhere. So they're really spending this pick as more quarterback resources. That's a curious pick. Um, again, I know the Eagles people well. I understand. I understand the Packers and Eagles trying to protect the future at the most important position. I wonder if they kind of stretched it to do that. Okay. Without further ado, we'll move from pro sports to college sports. I just think this is a fascinating issue. It's one I'm involved with in my other life, working for Villanova and being very aligned with the Villanova Athletics Department and being in a, in a college, uh, sports institution at Villanova, collegiate sports, where we have 20-something sports. One makes money. One, men's basketball, not football. Uh, so I have a different view than a lot of people of this, seeing this up close and personal. And the NCA came out with guidelines this week. So let's dive into them with my colleagues in sports law, someone I've dialed up before. We talked about NIL, name, image, likeness, before with another guest, Andy Schwartz from Cal. But I think this one, just me and Gabe will get into it and where it goes and sort of our feelings as we look into it. So without further ado, my guest from Tulane... True scholar in sports law, Gabe Feldman. Couldn't think of anyone better to talk about this name image likeness issue in the NCA to my friend Gabe Feldman. He's director of Tulane Sports Law. He's a professor at Tulane. He's been an NFL network legal analyst. He's an arbitrator with the Court of Arbitration of Sports. He's associate provost of NCA compliance. Gabe's done it all and has some history with this as well. He's been on the podcast before talking about this. No one better to talk about the NCA and name, image, and likeness and where it's going with my friend, Gabe Feldman. Gabe, welcome back. You're a recurrent visitor on the Business of Sports podcast now. Thanks, Andrew. It's good to be back. Good to hear your voice. I hope I get some kind of discount for my next visit. <laughs> yeah, you can uh, subscribe to the Business of Sports with no charge, <laughs> just like everyone right, else good. out there. Um, yeah, big news coming, and we're recording this on Wednesday the 29th we heard about um, we heard about the NCA coming out with something yesterday on the 28th and here we are um, I'm gonna ask you to sort of give you a blank canvas and your 30,000 foot view on where the NCA name image likeness report is as of today looking forward and maybe you can bring in looking back as well where we've come from where we are and where we're going on this issue Sure. And I'll just kind of give the big picture and just a little bit of history and, and try to summarize it as succinctly as possible. And yeah. I'll start by saying this is a major move. There's no question in my mind that this has the potential to be a watershed moment for the NCAA and for college athletes. And, and the reason I say that is just quickly looking at the history of the NCAA, their basic argument for over a century has been that 
they need to do something to differentiate college sports from pro sports. Their business right. model, their their social model, their policy model is all based on creating a distinction between college and pro sports. And their primary way of doing that was by creating this amateurism model. And the amateurism model said that college athletes cannot be paid based on their athletic ability other than their scholarship. And there were lots of fights about what that scholarship could include. And there were some recent moves there that it now covers the full cost of attendance. But what the NCAA has argued in, in, in public and in court everywhere is that college athletes cannot be paid more than their cost of attendance. If they're paid a dollar more than their educational expenses, then they become poorly paid professionals. And then there is no distinction between college and pro sports. And they have fought for that right, fought for that amateurism argument in, in dozens and dozens of legal cases and challenges from both plaintiffs and from the public and from the media. And they have held firm to that line. And the courts, for the most part, have given deference to the NCAA to hold that line. And as of today, and there were obviously other signals that this was coming, but as of today, the NCAA has recommended, the Board of Governors has recommended, that college athletes be allowed to be paid by third parties for the use of their name, image, and likeness in lots of different ways. Autographs, appearances, endorsements, modeling, camps, clinics, lots of things that for a very, very long time were not only completely forbidden, but would be a major violation under the NCAA rules. And the report lays out lots of suggestions, and then it tells the different divisions to come up with the specific rules to implement it. And so we don't know what those specific implementation rules, specific implementations will look like, but we are much, much further than we have ever been in terms of permitting college athletes to be compensated. And just the last thing I'll say about this is that it's a very lengthy report and very detailed, and this is not happening in a vacuum. As we talked about last time we were on the pod, and there's been lots of discussion of this, there are a lot of external pressures and factors at play right here, including states passing laws regarding name, image, and likeness, Congress talking about passing laws, and then the antitrust litigation that's out there, plus all of the public pressure. So they are trying to thread this needle um, to figure out how to modernize college athlete economic rights while also satisfying state and federal lawmakers, the antitrust plaintiffs and judges, um, and everybody else who's looking at this. All, by the way, in the middle of a pandemic. So this is a, this is a challenging time. But but this is a, a very big first step. We'll see what happens next. You've laid it out well, and I want to get to legislation and litigation, as we always talk about and follow up our last podcast discussion about this. But I think I want to echo your point, and you can emphasize it once again. For so many out there, and I understand them, and I hear from them all the time, that say there's exploitation and they've got to get paid, and this is pro sports just disguised as college sports and the NSCA is this old antiquated model. I get it, but I think you made the point, and I'll echo it. This is a big deal. This is an institution that everyone can talk about has never done X, Y, Z, and they're doing X, Y, Z. Now, they're not going to do it to the satisfaction of everyone. We've talked about that. But they're moving off that concrete-laden point that they've been at for so long, which is no which is just no, no, you're amateur, you're student athlete, you can't do any of this. 
And now they're doing it. But they're doing it with the word that I want to get your opinion on and whether it's the right word and how they're phrasing it is guardrails. So they're trying to put these guardrails in. And I'll just mention a couple of those guardrails, get your thoughts. One, they want to get away from anything that can be interpreted as pay for play. So any kind of inducement or endorsement or money is going to be, as you said, for name, image, likeness, but not for your play, not for being an athlete. And two, they want to make sure that there's no logo. There's no pick your school being mentioned. And as I understand it, the athlete can say, I'm John Doe from State University, but can't be represented in terms of apparel or logos. And then the third thing I want your comment on is this seems to be a structure where compliance departments who are already overworked will have to figure this out. And what they're doing, in addition to allowing this for student athletes, they're really creating a lot more work, in my mind, for compliance departments, whether it's just getting the call from the local furniture store that wants someone to come over or monitoring that those guardrails are in place. So those are just some initial thoughts, uh, like your your reactions. Yeah, and those are all great points. And I think you hit on the, the really key ones. And so let me, let me try to take them in order and then sure. jump in if you want to talk about each one of the specifics. But in terms of the um, avoiding this becoming pay-for-play, I, I think with all of the recommendations, everything in the report, there are at least two lenses to look through. One is the business perspective. How do we make college sports as popular as possible? Just ignoring what the law might say. If we only had business people and sports people in the room, what set of rules would they come up with? Mm. And part of the answer, and I know lots of people disagree with this, but part of the answer that the NCAA has come up with for a long time is that the business model is better if the college athletes are not paid to play. And many people can say, well, they're doing that because it's exploiting them and they're doing it because it keeps their costs down. And the NFL would love to do that, too, but they can't because it would be illegal. Um, But putting all that aside, there is the the business part of it, that they believe the right model is to not pay the athletes beyond their cost of attendance. Then there's the legal side. And the legal side of it is that they have for years argued that what makes them distinct and what makes them... Uh, not totally immune, but what allows them to survive antitrust attack is that they are different than pro sports because their athletes are amateurs. And they are essentially redefining or, or evolving the definition of amateurism here by saying, we know we used to say you can't be paid based on your athletic ability. We are changing that now. You can be paid based on your athletic ability, but in order to maintain that clear line between pro and college sports, you cannot be paid to play. And we will put all these guardrails, parameters, whatever you want to call them, in place to make sure these NIL payments are not just pay for play in disguise. And the classic example of that would be the local car dealer really wants to get the star quarterback to go to um, whatever school. And they say, I'm going to give you half a million dollars to make one appearance at my dealership. And we'd all know that's not because they want them to be at the dealership to uh, to build up business. Instead, they want them to come play football at that school. So right. they want to avoid that. That's why those parameters, those guardrails are in place. Again, both because they think it would hurt their business 
if this became pay for play. And also, this would hurt their legal arguments and, and might end the deference the courts have given them in antitrust court. Um, in terms of the, the no marks, th th this is a challenging one because, as, as you know, part of the value of a, an athlete is their association with their team, whether that's a pro team or a college team or the Olympic team. So this is not a, a unique thing where if you're an athlete, you can't use the mark and logo in an ad. What's unique right. is at the pro level, you can obviously enter into a deal with your team or in a group licensing deal to use right. the marks and logos and then share the revenue. The NCAA says you cannot do that. You, even if you get permission from Alabama, the Alabama quarterback cannot appear in an ad with the logo or wearing the jersey. And the argument against that is that's going to significantly decrease the value of these deals because for most of the athletes, they're not going to know who they are uh, right. unless they have some identifier on there. And, and they may, depending on the circumstance, be able to say, I'm the quarterback at Alabama, but it's obviously very different than appearing in the uniform. Uh, but the NCAA believes, and many athletic directors I've talked to believe, that this is a necessary guardrail, necessary restriction, because if you allow the school to be involved, either in setting up the deal or allowing the student to use the mark, it's just going to become part of the recruiting package, and it's going to further separate the haves and the have-nots, and it's going to essentially end up being pay for play. If you come to Alabama to play for the football team, we will guarantee you a deal that allows you to use the Alabama logo and pays you X amount of money. Um, so there, I think they're very much worried about recruiting. And again, this being a cover for pay for play. And then the last thing I'll hit on quickly in terms of the compliance costs, I think you might be right. Um, I, I would say the compliance costs are pretty high right now. And they're, yeah. they're, all the stuff is difficult to monitor because the rules are so complicated. And if you just opened it up a little bit, it might actually be easier to monitor. But I would also say one thing that's missing from the NCAA report that the Knight Commission has pushed, and I've done some work with them on that and some other groups have pushed, is to have the creation of either an independent or a third party that would handle the compliance board, that everything would have to be run through essentially a clearinghouse. It wouldn't mean the compliance office had no work to do on this, but this could all be vetted ahead of time so we know who the third party is if they're approved. We know what the parameters are for the deal. There could be a standard contract like we have in lots of other areas. So I think that could, could, make, this, could make this much more efficient and reduce a lot of those costs. Well said. And I want to pick up again on the endorsement part of it and the athlete sort of saying, I'm Joe Blow from State University, but without the marks. I think a lot of people know watching pro athletes on their local commercials where you'll see a Philadelphia Eagle wearing a green shirt with no marks, and he'll say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm Carson Wentz, football player. And people have gotten used to that, and you think, oh, okay, they haven't done the deal with the NFL. There's no group licensing deal. So this is where we are with college sports right now. They're allowing college athletes to move into that territory where you've seen pro athletes saying, I'm a pro football player, I'm a basketball player, I'm a baseball player, and they don't have the marks. So we're getting there, but that sort of segues to the question I've gotten a lot today, I'm sure you have too, what about the EA, what about the video games? And Val Ackerman has said, who is one of the leaders of this task force about this, the chairman of the Big East, she's been on the podcast, that no, in so many words, that's not happening because that would require a group licensing agreement 
that would require unionization and that would require employee status. And as I see it, that would require the pay for play model. So are you reading it as all those people hoping for an EA game out of this? That's not happening. Yeah, I, I, that is what I'm reading out of this as well. And it's also the number one question I've gotten is, does this mean I'm getting my video game back? And yeah. at least for now, the answer is no, for all the reasons you mentioned. And I know that's disappointing for a lot of people. I, I would say that the potential silver lining in all of this is there are two silver linings. One is this is not necessarily going to be a fixed state. I think we will continue to see the model evolve, and this is going to be a lot of trial and error, and they may end up reducing some of the uh, options. They may end up expanding. And, and, I, and I think what a lot of people have looked at with no marks and logos and no group licensing is this is a lost revenue opportunity for the schools. And at a time where they're searching for new revenue, particularly as we get closer to talking about potentially shortened fall seasons or canceled seasons or, or reduced ticket sales or whatever it might be, shouldn't they be looking for more creative ways to get revenue, not looking for ways to give up revenue? And this would right. clearly be leaving some revenue on the table. Um, so I, I think there's still room for change. And at the very end of the report on page 31, and I, I realize not many people make it to page 31 of these types of reports, <laughs> they right. do specifically say that the division should continue to explore whether there is a way to do group licensing. Um, and so the door is still open for the video games, but certainly it's it's a it's just cracked open right now, and that won't be the first thing to come back if it comes back at all. Um, I, I, and I understand the argument. Part of it is, as you mentioned, they're worried because there is no union, and right. they very much want that to remain the same. They don't want the the college athletes to be recognized as employees for a lot of reasons, including they don't want them to be able to unionize, um, but also there's the issue of if it's done at the institutional level, then again, you're talking about potentially a recruiting advantage. And that if you go to Alabama, you know that you will get a much larger chunk of group licensing revenue because people have give more value to the Alabama brand than to the Slippery Rock brand. So I think there's the, the who's going to represent the athletes part of it. And then also, is this going to turn into pay for play? Um, and just the, the last two things I'll mention quickly on this. One is that I, I, I don't think that, um, well, I'll, I'll mention this one point. The door to me still would be open to group licensing, but at the division level. Mm. That if all of the schools and all of the FBS conferences, let's say, pool their rights for a video game or for trading cards, and then all of that revenue is shared equally among all the schools. Then you don't have a recruiting issue. And nobody's right. picking a particular school that everybody's getting an equal share. And that's not fair competition. I get it that people would say that's, that's ridiculous. Just let them compete. But that's not happening according to NCAA. But it would seem like a compromise might be, let's just share the revenue across the board. But then the question still is, well, how much do the players get? In the pro leagues, you have a union that negotiates that. There is no union here. I think there can be the creation of a group. It doesn't have to be a union that negotiates on behalf of the college athletes. And that's, again, something that the NCAA wants to get away from because they don't want it to be seen as this entity that they have to negotiate with. But, but that is a possible solution down the road. But it is, I know, disappointing for everybody who's still playing uh, 2007 college football video games. <laughs> 
Well, as you said, there's still hope as this, this is a moving fluid document or task force or as we move towards 2021, you know, the one thing I just wanted to pick up again on the athlete versus the school. And we talked about this in our last podcast a lot with Andy Schwartz joining us in terms of value. And I almost felt like there should be like a blue ribbon economic panel to decide or determine or suggest what's the value of an athlete without the school, what's the value of an athlete with the school, and just to letting our listeners eavesdrop what I could eavesdrop into some of this conversation, at least from the Big East, where my school Villanova is part of, you take a player like this guy at Georgetown basketball named Matt McClung, okay? So he comes in as this star with all these crazy dunks in high school. He's got thousands, I don't even know, hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. And then he's at Georgetown. So it almost becomes, okay, what's the pre-Georgetown McClung? And what's the post-during Georgetown McClung? And how do you value that? And I think maybe this report sort of gets away from that because it just says you can't use logos and marks and this is going to be different. It's but to me, that's that's a real question of valuation um, in terms of, you know, what are we looking at here? And maybe, you, like you said, the market will just play out. There won't be the value for these players that people think in good part because they're not really associated with the school, at least visually. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's a great question. And I think it's a it's going to be a challenge in all of this. And the way I see it, and, and this is why I actually think uh, a lot of the guardrails ultimately won't be necessary, because I, I think the key is here is just making sure these are legitimate deals for name, yeah. image, and likeness, period. And if you make sure they're legitimate deals for name, image, and likeness, then all the other issues, I think, go away. Um, you might need some other things to try to ensure it's a legitimate deal, but I think primary in there is obviously the price. How much are they getting paid to do what you're asking them to do? And fair market value, which is mentioned a couple of times in the report, but only two times in a 32-page report. Um, so I, I, I admit that it is a hard thing to determine, but it's why I think having an independent group, a third party involved that has experts in this field, it would have athletic directors, it would have university presidents, but it would have marketing experts, it would have branding experts, it would have social media experts that right. would help determine what is a fair market range and as you know, th this issue, although it's heightened in college sports, it's not unique to college sports, as we saw with DeAndre Jordan and the NBA, that the pro leagues take very seriously anti-circumvention uh, or circumvention of their salary caps. And they want to make sure their owners aren't paying their players under the table to right. be able to pay more than the capital allowed them to pay. So those issues do come up at the pro level. We try to figure out, all right, was this a legitimate deal? Um, and if not, we're not going to allow it. I, I think you could try to do the same thing at the college level. But on, on your point of what was McClung's value, let's say, before um, Georgetown and after Georgetown or during Georgetown, I'm not sure you necessarily need to ask that question because we don't ask that question at the pro level or in Hollywood or anywhere else. We recognize that, part of the value from the player or the actor or the musician comes from the platform they're given, whether it's the team or the movie they're in or the band they play in or whatever it might be. But 
we don't deprive them of that additional value. If a if Carson Wentz is 20 times more valuable because he's playing for the Eagles, we don't say, Carson, you don't get that extra value because that belongs to the Eagles. We say you can't wear the Eagles jersey unless they give you permission to do it. But we allow them to capture the full va- him the, to allow to capture the full value of the of the increase in worth he got from being on the Eagles. So I, I think we would do the same thing for a college athlete. Yeah, Zion was worth a lot before he got to Duke, worth even more when he was at Duke. Um, so just let him get what somebody's willing to pay him. Now, how do we figure out what is fair and what's legitimate? That's a tougher question to answer, but there are a lot of really smart economists who can help figure this out. So I, I think that's doable. Yeah, and I always, I, you and I disagree a bit on this because I do push back on, let's take the McLung example. If he came in with whatever, 200,000 Instagram followers, and now at Georgetown, he's got 300,000. If he came into, you used a sort of Alabama versus Slippery Rock. Let's pick a school. I don't know. Uh, we'll stay with Slippery Rock. If he comes into Slippery okay. Rock. No offense to the Slippery Lock list. Yeah, sorry lock for uh, people, yeah. for my listeners from that school. Um, <laughs> with with 200,000 social media and does an ad, whatever it is, it's going to be a lot less than coming in to Georgetown and going over to the furniture store in Washington, D.C. versus the furniture store down the street from Slippery Rock. So I guess we're, we're saying in part the same thing, but school does matter. And, and, you know, the Zion example, Duke does matter. If Zion even stayed home and went to South Carolina, I think that would be a different value for his name, image, and likeness. I completely agree. And I think it does, it does matter. Just like if pro athletes sometimes think it matters what market they go to. And right. I think that's less important these days, but it still might matter whether you're in New York or Chicago or LA or wherever it might be versus Jacksonville or other places. Um, but I would say two things. Uh, one, which I think is interesting is normally we would think of the big markets as the place you'd want to go because you're, endorsement opportunities would be larger. I'm not sure that's the case in college sports because we don't normally think of the small towns in Alabama or we don't think of Baton Rouge as being a big market. But my right. sense is that the athletes that go to LSU or Alabama might have more opportunities than let's say the ones who go to Rutgers because the market is so much more crowded up there and, and people may pay a lot more attention to college sports in these smaller towns and cities. Uh, the other thing I would say is in terms of this may be influencing where a college athlete goes because they'd rather go to Georgetown where they're going to get a hundred thousand more followers and therefore be able to monetize that by whatever amount um, versus going to slippery rock. And we don't want college athletes choosing their school based on how many Instagram followers they'll pick up. I, mm-hmm. I, I agree with that, but to me that horse is out of the barn already a little bit. College athletes are already choosing schools based on lots of factors other than education and they're choosing based on their training facilities, the coaching staff, the prospects of going pro. I think this would be folded into that. And none of them, in my mind, are the optimal reason for choosing a school. But in today's world, I I think we have to recognize that they're making these decisions based on lots of different factors. And I don't think adding NIL in there and the potential boost to the value is, is necessarily a bad thing. I don't necessarily think it's a great thing, but I don't think it's a bad thing. And I don't think it outweighs 
the importance of allowing these college athletes to capture the, the value they've created, even if that value is enhanced by a particular school. Fair enough. And I think segueing on that point, it gets a little off of NIL, but I think it can be related. We just talked about Zion in our last podcast. We talked a lot about that and the alternatives out there. It's probably not coincidental. People have suggested it is It is coincidental, but as you know, this NCAA report's been in the works a while, that it comes out a day or two after we've seen not one, not two, not three, perhaps four potential NBA top picks opt for the G League. And I don't know the exact amounts, but we're hearing hundreds of thousands of dollars and starting a new team out in LA that's not going to be affiliated with any NBA team. And these 18 year olds are going to get this huge money and theoretically still be able for the N- eligible for the NBA draft in a, in a year. I'm trying to connect the dots. Can you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the dots are there. I think you're right. I think it, it, it ends up painting ultimately a pretty clear picture that the NCAA recognizes it needs to evolve and that this is part of the evolution, but, but uh, they're a little bit juggling flaming knives with all of this because as they try to loosen the restrictions to provide more benefits to college athletes, they are staring down, sorry to mix my metaphors here, but they're staring down the barrel of the antitrust lawsuits that are arguing that amateurism has been amorphous and inconsistent over time. And it really has no meaning other than what they actually say it is today. Um, so this would feed into that argument, the more benefits they give to college athletes. So they've got to worry about that. But they also have to worry about California and Florida and Colorado and 30 plus other states uh, threatening to, in, to force change on them through state laws. And they have to worry about Congress threatening their tax exempt status. And so I, I think their, their move and the timing of it, I, I would agree that there's very little that's coincidence in these massive industries. Um, but, but, but I think it gets resolved a different way. And I think it gets resolved through the change in the age restriction by the NBA and the Players Association. Right. And I think that happens relatively soon. And once that happens, we don't have to worry about the issues for those guys. They'll, they'll have the opportunity to be drafted. And then the NBA and the players can decide is that on a G league team? Is that there a two way contract? Is it some other um, structure they come up with to allow these relatively small number of star high school basketball players to turn pro immediately, but allow them to develop and um, protect them in case it doesn't work out because $500,000, obviously it's a great salary for lots of people, but if that's your entire salary for your, for your entire working career, that's not so great anymore. Um, and so they've got to protect against the, the guys who don't make it. And so I, I think there's a lot of room for change that may happen outside of the NCAA because of the, the change in the age restriction. Yeah. And again, I think you pointed out well that once, as we expect, I think it, it goes back to the way it was with Kobe Bryant and Kevin Garnett and player and LeBron James going directly from high school, to the NBA through collective bargaining that's the end of that, you know, right? Right. I mean, it's right. and it's it, it's more than those four we've heard about. I mean, Le, the ball brother, I forget his name, Langelo or Lamelo, uh, doing this before with Lithuania, and we've talked about uh, 
the uh, New Balance internship kid for a million dollars and a couple kids going overseas. But yeah, that can be solved relatively easily. But again, the outliers could be be a huge number. It could be a huge number that that are going to college right now because they have to or they have no real other alternatives. And then if you've got a a better developmental system that may convince, uh, you know, more than a handful to skip college. And I think that ultimately would be better for everybody. I think it's better for the for the athlete. I think it's better for the college. I think it's better for the NBA. I think it just allows people to go where they want to go. Um, and then we can figure out the best way to educate them because no offense to any of the the one and done players, but but we know for many of them, they may go to class in the fall, but for a lot of them they stop going in the spring because they don't need to anymore. They don't have to worry about eligibility. So they're getting one semester of college. And what what benefit ultimately is that giving them as as we're both educators? So I'm not trying to minimize the value of a college education or a law school education. But I think there might be better ways to handle that than forcing them essentially to go to college for a year or half a year. I think this is a nice segue to to the larger population of college athletes, which, again, you and I had some disagreements, I think, more with our previous guest, Andy, about about the extent of NIL. And I get it. I get it. It's not just the superstar football and basketball players. But are we really talking about much of a population here? And and listen, let's, again, you just said we're educators. You're Tulane. I'm at Villanova. We've won the NSA championship a couple years out of the last five. And and that program is profitable. It's one of 20-something sports, and it's the only one that is. Uh, so I guess the question becomes two part. One, how deep a population are we looking at uh, beyond the superstar basketball and football players and maybe even beyond, you know, the women's softball pitcher that can give some private lessons or et cetera. And two, if it's not coming from the college, I guess we don't have to worry about this, but our non-revenue sports, mostly men's, not women's, at risk here in any way, even though the money is theoretically not coming from the colleges, it's coming from third parties. Your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great question. And I think the fear that has been expressed that even if the money is not coming from the colleges, is it going to be funneling some money away from the college? So instead of doing the full deal with Villanova, they're going to do 80% of the deal with Villanova, and then the other 20% will go directly to the college athlete for the individual. Team. And right. that that loss of revenue is going to hurt not only the basketball program, but also the Olympic sports that the basketball revenue helps to fund. Um, right. And I don't know if that's right or not. I don't know if we'll have that displacement effect where the school, the, the, the third parties decide they'd rather have the athlete than the than the entire school or some of that percentage to go to the athlete instead of the school. It would seem to me that that would be a relatively small number of athletes that would, that would happen with, that would be the Zions of the world. And we know there are just not very many of them. Um, so I think that risk may not be that great. And even if that happens, if you look at the budgets for most athletic departments, the revenue they get from these deals is relatively small. And so even if they're losing 10 or 15 or 20% of it, that by itself is not going to lead to 
such a significant budget shortfall that they have to start canceling sports. And as you rightly noted, it would most likely be the men's sports because you have to wrap Title IX into this, and it's going to be very difficult right. to cut women's sports with, with the Title IX requirements. So it, it would probably be, if there were budget shortfalls, the men's sports being cut, or, or more so than the women's sports. But I don't think that's likely to happen. And in fact, I think it might go the other way. I think this might allow for more revenue to come in because you're going to have, I think the existing sponsors will continue. And then you'll have some of these smaller sponsors that couldn't afford the big deals with the institution will start giving money to the individual athlete. And I think that might hook them into the school more, and that that mm. might lead to, to more giving eventually. So I'm not worried about that part as much. And then the second part, how many students will this actually impact and how many people will get deals? Again, I, it's, I don't know, but I, 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 the answer I like to give in this, and I might have mentioned this on the earlier pod, is if you look at a, a website like Cameo, where yeah. you can have celebrities, and I'm putting celebrities in quotes, do a social media message for you for two minutes or, or four minutes, and it's a free market system. They get to decide how much they want to charge, and if you want to, you can get Parrot Top to leave a message for you for 100 bucks. Um, if there's a market for all of those people on Cameo, these like, not, no offense to Carrot Top, but the, the E minus celebrities, um, then I, I think there's a market for more college athletes than we expect. And I think there is, even if it may be small, I think there's a market in these small college towns where you get a decent number of fans coming to the women's softball game or to the swim meet or to the lacrosse game that there's going to be interest from the local, whether it's the apparel manufacturer or, or wherever it might be, even if it's an in-kind deal, even if, if you get free lacrosse sticks or gloves or whatever it might be, right. I think there's going to be a, a, and this is a lawyer term here, but a non-insignificant market there. I don't know if it'll be significant, but I think there will be a fair number of athletes that get opportunities here than otherwise would have. And, and if I'm wrong, then we're all gnashing our teeth over very little, right? We're gnashing over our teeth over a, a very small number of athletes. And these are the athletes that most people don't necessarily think of as traditional college athletes. I mean, Zion, as much as I love Zion, you look at him and, and I don't think you, 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 anyone was under the notion that he was going to stay at school for all year, all four years. And that he was, just like every other student on campus, we look at him differently than we look at our, our non-athlete students. So I think it's either going to affect a very small number of athletes, and then it's not that big of a deal, or it's going to affect a large number of athletes. And this is something that is long, long, long overdue. And we've deprived a lot of people of their economic rights and that the granting of their rights will outweigh any of the negatives that might come and let's wrap where you've referenced in your first answer. I said we'd circle back to legislation and litigation. You know, tell us where we are on litigation, even outside. I mean, there's there's NCAA litigation. We talked about the O'Bannon case and sort of the the aftermath of that. You can update us on that. And then the litigation part. I'm sorry, legislation part. We've heard about California, but you dive in deep to California's law, and it doesn't really enact until 2023, which seems like a lifetime ahead of us. And Florida has talked about an earlier calendar, but obviously there's a lot more going on in the world right now that where that doesn't seem to be a priority. So where are we on legislation and litigation in, in your mind? And 
is that driving or will drive how fast this becomes real? Yeah, I mean, I think those are the the fiery knives that the NCAA is yeah. struggling right now. And the state legislation, as you mentioned, California was first, but their effective date, as you mentioned, is not until 2023. We've also got Florida, Colorado, and I believe the total number now is 34 states that are either considering legislation or in the process of, of finalizing it. And the the state laws vary across states. Some allow more rights, some allow less, some cover health insurance and, and medical benefits, so they're kind of all across the board. The other um, legislation that's out there or, or possibility is at the federal level. And, and I, I think both at the state level and the federal level, it's a little hard to imagine that any of these legislators have this anywhere near the top of their priority list at this point. They may have had it there three months ago or two months ago, but I, I don't think it's, if it were politically smart to to um, propose and, and approve this legislation two months ago, I, I'm not sure that's the case now. So right. even though some of the effective dates may end up being 2022, I think those could get pushed back. And I think they right. could get pushed back, one, because of the pandemic, and two, because of the NCAA's actions here. I think it might buy them some more time in the eyes of state legislators that say, wait a minute, the NCAA is actually taking this seriously and they're making significant reform here. So let's see what they do, because everybody, I think, agrees it makes more sense for these changes to happen internally than to have somebody force the changes to be made. Um, and at the federal level, there hasn't been a lot of movement. I think there's a lot of discussion. Um, but again, we'll see what impact the NCAA's report has on that. And then the third piece of it that's that's relatively new uh, is, a, is a group called the Uniform Law Commission that has drafted a number of model acts that states can adopt. Uh, and so the, the most famous one is the Uniform Commercial Code, which virtually every state has adopted some form of it. The, uh, the Uniform Athlete Agent Act is another example of right. it. And they have just put together a group to study this. And mm. I'm, I'm involved in that group, and, and it's still at the very early stages. But they're asking the question now whether a uniform state law would make sense, uh, because the NCAA has long argued that they need to have the same rules for every state and every school and every state and every player at every school. Uh, and that won't happen if California and Florida are allowed to pass different laws. So what the Uniform Law Commission is looking at is saying, well, we will uh, enact a, a model law, essentially, that, others, that states can adopt. So it'll happen at the state level, but every state will adopt the same law. So we'll see what what comes out of that. They're right now talking about whether they want to move forward with even exploring that and whether there's enough appetite to to consider what the legislation would look like. Um, so there's that. And the litigation very quickly, the Alston case, which challenged mm -hmm. the NCAA's ability to restrict any compensation for college athletes, not just NIL. And that was narrowed a bit because of the abandoned decision, because it's brought in the same court. That's uh, wait, we're waiting to get a decision from the Ninth Circuit right before the the world came to a screeching, screeching halt. That case was heard by the Ninth Circuit, um, and so they are still deciding it, and we'll see what the opinion is there. And then there's the the, the other case that's being known as the Kessler case, which is was brought by Jeff Kessler as the lead plaintiff that was stayed pending the outcome of this Alston case, um, and we'll see if that case go, goes forward in New Jersey. It's a very similar case that is looking to, again, not just allow NIL payments, 
but allow schools to pay their college athletes directly. So those cases, if they're successful, could make this NIL discussion seem quaint. But if the ultimate outcome is colleges can pay them directly for any reason they want, then we'll look back at the NIL discussion and say, why do we spend so much time on that? That's going to be such a small portion of the money that's getting paid to the, to the athletes. Um, but the, the NCAA has, has mostly won those cases. So we'll see if this new set of judges rules differently. But that's a lot for the NCAA to be thinking about. State law, federal law, uniform law commission, antitrust litigation, and the pandemic and the possibility of having short season or, or maybe no season at all in the fall. Yeah, we haven't even touched on how the pandemic is already affecting things. I've noted a couple, obviously some athletic departments are doing uh, pay cuts. They're doing furloughs. Uh, I noted a couple of, um, as we talked about, men's Olympic type sports, non-revenue sports being cut amid all this. I noticed Old Dominion uh, wrestling was cut and some others as well. So yeah, there are bigger issues involved here. And as we started, you, I think a lot of people out there are like, okay, it's done. No, we are in the beginning stages. As you said, there's a reports from the divisions due. Is it, is it January 2021 when their final reports are due or when whatever is resolved goes into effect? So the idea is that the legislation would go into effect for the 21-22 season. Um, right. So, and that January 31, 2021 is when the division should have enacted all of the proposals. So you can back up from there, but, but January 31, 2021 is when the proposal should be finalized into legislation to take effect the following fall. Um, but the next deadline of note is April 30th. There's going to be a special of 2020 report delivered August 30th. They want drafts of the legislative proposals by the divisions. October 31st, they want review of those proposals. Um, and then you get to January 31, 2021 for, for finalizing those proposals. And I, like everything, those are probably soft targets ultimately, given how much is changing. But if everything goes according to plan, which it very rarely does, then yes, we would have new rules in place by fall 2021. And just so people know, that is the that is what the target is. We're not talking about, say, uh, Trevor Lawrence doing a lot of commercials around Clemson this this fall, assuming we have college football. Right, right, and and we won't pl be playing the college uh, NCAA video game either. I know so many people's so, top concern here. <laughs> people who are looking forward to Trevor Lawrence promoting the new college video game are going right. to be very upset. By this, by this double, double whammy for them. That'll wait till yeah. a year at least. Uh, I'd be yeah. remiss. Uh, how are you? You're in New Orleans at Tulane. How is New Orleans? How are you holding up? How's the family? I know a life with little kids like you is different than a life with big kids like me. You doing all right? Yeah, I, I appreciate it. We're all doing well. We're all hunkered down. Um, the New Orleans situation seems to be improving like a lot of the big cities that got hit hardest first, but our fingers are crossed. And I've got a lot of friends who are over on the front lines and medical providers, and, and it's just incredible to see what they've been doing and to, to hear the stories from them. So um, hopefully we're 
we're going to continue improving and, and get back to relative normal pretty soon. Um, my kids are doing great. They seem to enjoy this vacation, certainly more than uh, my wife and I are enjoying it. Although <laughs> we have noted many times since we are giving, doing homeschool essentially um, that we're trying to figure out the transfer process to see if we can get some of these students out of our class because <laughs> they're, they're unruly. They don't hand in their assignments on time. They talk back to their teachers. The, but but everything's good. I can't complain. There there's we're we're fortunate to be in the circumstance we are, given all the the terrible things that are happening out there. And uh, look forward to being back on campus at some point soon. And and I, I wish my students the best of luck with their finals and and taking the bar whenever that happens and entering yeah. the job market. But uh, how about how about you guys? You doing okay? Yeah, same as I said. I'm in the older child category. In fact, one was living in Brooklyn, and he hightailed it out of there with his girlfriend and two cats, so we've had them here. Uh, and my high school senior has been doing all his online work. I feel for him not being able to do the prom and the in-person graduation this year. And now we are, you know, like everyone else, wondering to see what he hasn't decided fully on a college yet, but uh, is there going to be college in the fall on campus? So... I, you know, I feel for him a lot of uncertainty going on, but he uh, he's loving the late start times for the Zoom classes. I'll tell you, that. <laughs> he has a he has a eleven o'clock start time on a class. I see him sort of trumble down around ten fifty six. There he is. Yeah. So there there's yeah. the difference. My wife and between... I definitely have late start times for our classes. <laughs> so yeah. We've we've. We've taken advantage of that as well. No more yeah. getting up at 6.30 with the kids to get them ready for school. And while I have you here, Instead, I mean, everyone's asking me. And watch TV. Yeah. Everyone's asking me. I'll ask you, what do you think of sports in 2020? Are we going to see it? Are we going to see a biosphere? Are we going to see sequestration of teams? Are we going to see games without fans? Are we going to see games at all? Uh I'll just say this and let you chime in. Obviously, the NFL, which I cover most, has the luxury, if you call it that, of watching and waiting and seeing where it goes with testing and tracing and seeing what the NFL, I'm sorry, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball do. And then they can go from there. Those other three leagues I mentioned don't have that luxury. What's your best guess on what happens? My best bet is, is, that um, again, assuming we kind of continue along this trajectory in terms of an improvement and the flattening of the curve and advances in terms of testing and tracing and all, all the stuff you mentioned, that we'll get um, live sports with social distancing in the arenas and the stadiums. So I, I think it will start to look a lot like we thought it was going to look like right before everything was shut down. And hmm. you remember the announcement that the college basketball tournament was going to be played in front of in, in empty stadiums. Right. I think we'll, we'll that to me seems the way we'll we'll work back into things slowly. Um, but that all depends on obviously the recommendations from the from the government from the state, and some states may not allow it. And so it certainly seems like baseball is trying their hardest to figure out how to get back up and running for at least part of the season. Um, right. but I don't, you know, I, I wish I knew, I wish I had, but my, if I were to guess, then by late summer, early fall, we'll start to have 
the the live team sports again. Obviously, you can do golf, you can do tennis more easily, and we're gonna we're gonna start seeing that a lot more. But uh, as far as I know, and this would be quite an innovation, it is impossible to play NFL football um, while social distancing. That's that's <laughs> difficult to to accomplish. You can watch it socially distanced, but but I agree, they've got the the benefit of going sort of last in line here. Um, and, and frankly, uh, what's been interesting about this, and I think will continue to be interesting is all the innovation that's coming from it, that right. the leagues are forced to think of new ways to distribute their product. And I think the NFL draft is a perfect example of that, that I don't, I don't know your perspective on it, but I thought it went incredibly well. And, yeah. and I, I would be surprised that they don't borrow some of that for the live drafts they do in the future. Absolutely. And uh, I've talked about it on this program about how much I envied this draft 10 years in a war room. Where <laughs> I wouldn't think of being able to have my sons who were young at the time come in and just that, that envy I had all weekend of that human touch of family around those guys. And I thought it interesting. Hey. These guys, guys making five million a year kind of makeshift office in the basement, uh, you know, that looked pretty sparse. So I'm like, what's going on with these guys? <laughs> it was a uh, home decorator's dream to, uh, <laughs> yeah. someone should have outfitted all these places. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. the innovation will come from live games too. I don't know what that's going to be, but I just can't see sports going away. Uh, even within the pandemic. Now, if that means, you know, you hear about the NBA, throwing all the teams together in Las Vegas and empty hotels and having a made for TV court and shuttling them to and from the games and they never leave the hotel and they're tested daily or whatever it is. You know, I get the feeling like, yeah, that could happen. But yeah. as you know, you know, you have one Rudy Gobert situation and then what do you do? Shut it down again. Right. So, right. And I think that's, that's what a lot of people are overlooking is the what happens if it, if it occurs again. And maybe their contingency plan where, all right, if, if somebody does test positive, then they're just removed from the league for whatever period of time until they, they're, they're negative. And, and I will tell you, I, I've talked to a lot of people outside of sports who are wondering the same thing. When do these large companies allow their employees to come back? Right. And for some of them, it, it's, it's, you know, you, again, you can do remote, working on a lot of things, but you can't do it in manufacturing and you can't do it in sports and, and in many other areas. And they're wondering, how do we get our thousands of employees back in the office? And short of a test that gives you results instantly to be able to say, okay, you're clear, you can go now into the office or no, you got to go back into quarantine. Um, there's so much risk of of undoing all the work we seem to have done in the last two months with, with social distancing and quarantine. So it's a, it is unbelievable what the, every company is going through right now in terms of decision trees and the different contingencies to plan for. I don't, I don't envy any of them. Um, and, and it's obviously, as we know, even harder when you're in an industry where everybody is watching you. And yeah. I don't think there's much a better example of the power of sport than to see what happened when the NBA canceled its season. You know, I don't, I don't think right. it's, it's overstating it to say that that was kind of the, the domino that, that led to the shutdown of most of our country uh, was because Rudy Gobert 
and and the jazz and all and all that. I mean, I, I just I didn't that all that jazz. But yeah, I I just think that that had such an impact on this country, um, which is pretty telling. Absolutely. And and my final comment again in the non-sports world, and this would apply to the business of sports people as well, not the athletes. You mentioned the draft. I mean, and people think and saying that they should get some of that going post-pandemic. I think the world's going to look different post-pandemic in education and in business. Uh, more remote, more remote learning, more remote working. And people are going to find out how essential, and I don't mean essential in a pejorative way, how essential their presence is, maybe not their work, but how essential their presences in some office. I really think you're, we're going to see people like both on from both sides, from management and labor saying, you know what, I don't need to get in a car and go 40 minutes back and forth to sit in an office and email the guy down the hall anyway. I, I just think that's going to change. I really do. After all this. I agree. I agree. It is, it is remarkable to think that we're living in the middle of a major turning point in history, but I, but I think we are, and that the world may look so different in two years. Um, and, and it could be the sports world as well, but just the world in general. Yeah. It, 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 so it's, um, but, but I do think, uh, just, you know, bringing it back to sports for a second, that there, there aren't many other industries other than the essential services. So whether it's our, our food or our water or, or sanitation, whatever it might be, where people are saying, I, I can't live without this. But sports yeah. is one of them. Yeah. Where people are saying, I, I just, I know things are miserable for a lot of people. And, and you know, there, there was a lot of criticism when NBA players were getting tested, when tests were really not available to most people. Um, but, but I think a large segment of the population at this point would say, yes, I, I do value having live professional sports or college sports, um, even if it means putting some additional resources there because it means so much to the collective psyche of this country. And it's, it's one of the things that's, it's, again, it may be the most unifying thing we have in this country. Um, so I understand people who say it's just sports, but it's, it's not just sports. It's, it's a lot more than, than people just playing a game and what it means to the country and what it means to, I think, our, our overall um, emotional well-being. I get it. I hear it all the time. And I admit, I'm not saying, I'm not going to admit I was wrong, but I do say that I was one of those people that said NFL free agency and NFL draft, no need to do it right now. And because, and my reason was exactly what you said. My reason is we shouldn't operate because fans are bored. We shouldn't operate because fans say, where's my sports? I want my sports. I need my sports. We should operate as with everything in the face of the virus and what's good, what's bad, what's important right now. But I get it. I get it. And I guess my point in sort of saying we didn't need free agency of the draft when it happened was almost like, hey, we're going to need it more. Instead of March and April, we're going to need it more in May and June. But it went off great, you know, and now I think people are going to get back to What's next? You know, what's next on the calendar? We really need something. Um, you're right. It's the it's what what you and I trade on academically as well is the power of sports. Yeah, and I and that sports are different. They're just different. 
for better or worse, they're different. Yeah. And it's, it's why people treat them differently. It's why judges treat them differently. It's why legislators treat them differently. It's, it's in a way they are different. Uh, again, it can be for better or for worse, but, um, but I, but like, I, I know that anyone listening to this, I would imagine is, is certainly hopeful that we're able to get the seasons back up and running. And as a, a Pelicans fan living in new Orleans, I'm hopeful that they'll, they'll give some time for the end of the regular season for the Pelicans to make a playoff push and, and then we can look back at this moment um, and we won't quite be able to laugh, but, but learn a lot from it, but then get back to uh, a new normal, but get back to, to normal and, and figure out how to get this all under control and, and everybody can be safe and, and, and at least get back to, 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 to thinking about building for the future as opposed to just sort of putting out the current crisis. Well said, and we'll uh, we'll land this plane on that note. <laughs> Gabe, that was awesome. Uh, always enjoy talking to you as a friend, as a colleague, as a scholar. Uh, and you're a uh, you're a repeat visitor on the business of sports, and you'll you'll be on again if 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 you're willing. I look forward to it, Andrew. It's always a pleasure. Always great to hear from you, to talk to you, and and let's definitely do it again. Be well, be safe. Likewise, same to you, my friend. Hey, really hope you enjoyed getting into it with Gabe. Gabe and I uh, sort of did a little master class, we hope, on name, image, and likeness, rights of student-athletes, where it's been, where it's going, his history with the Knight Commission, and going forward. Hope you enjoyed that. Before getting to wrap up in our Bet Online sponsor, again, I want to go into one more rant, and that's about this continuing popularity and extraordinary view into The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. To reiterate, I've been here before talking about this. I spent the early part of my career working for David Falk. David Falk was, has been, and still is Michael Jordan's agent. David Falk was a relentless negotiator that I followed and sort of taught me a lot about the business and got to see a little bit of it with Michael. We're going to see more from David Falk in these coming episodes. And as we sit here today, we haven't seen anything about his early marriage. Uh, so I'm waiting to see what goes on there with Michael's, uh, Michael's wife and our former wife, of course, and see what more of the sort of interpersonal side of Michael Jordan. We've seen some of it. And just one thing about Jordan, this Jordan doc is so good because of Michael. His interviews are raw. They're honest, emotional. He's open. He's honest about everything going on from his own teammates to other teammates and he's real, and I think we're seeing a side of Michael we never saw before. His speeches, his his commentary before when he has to be public has been stilted, I think, has been limited. So kudos on the directors and producers, one of which is Mike Tolan, I know from Stanford way back in the day, just getting the best of Michael. And maybe it was easy for him. You see he's got the drink next to him. I don't know if that's bourbon or cognac or scotch or whatever it is, but it's working. It's working. So more Michael. Love the highlights. Love all the commentary. But most of all, love him in this. And finally, a word from Bet Online. You know, we don't have NHL, NBA, Major League Baseball. You might think there's nothing to bet on, but you would be wrong. <laughs> bet Online has live all kinds of things going on. They have hundreds of events, games, props. They have daily Madden NFL 20 simulations. They have entertainment betting, Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day, all online. 
BetOnline, your online wagering solution. So visit our friends there. Don't forget the promo code PODCAST1 for your 50% sign-up bonus today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. And that'll do it for this week's edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Hope you enjoyed this college sports edition in addition to my pro sports rants. Appreciate all of you that follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. Apple Podcast rankings and comments are always appreciated. And we'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. If you love scratches from the Virginia Lottery, you'll love the high roller blackjack scratcher with a chance to win up to 10 times your prize. Look for it at your favorite Virginia Lottery retailer. In fact, you can drive there right now. Now that's an everyday win. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 4.16. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today.